In case any of you have missed any of these services, I've been teaching on what I call spirit, soul, and body. It's just talking about that it's the spirit part of us that got saved, not our soul and not our body, and that everything about relating to the Lord has to be based on who you are in the spirit. And so I started talking about that last night. I talked about it again this morning. And uh, if you've missed any of that, I encourage you to please get the CDs. This is what changed my life. I used this expression last night. It's just like somebody stuck a key in my brain and turned it and it unlocked the Word of God. It opened me up. Everything I teach is based on understanding this. And I uh, don't understand how anybody really can go very far with the Lord if you don't understand and focus on who you are in the Spirit and not just base things on, on the flesh. Here's a verse that I used this morning, and I'm going to start with this tonight, and we're going to amplify this and say some things. But in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, it says, And that you put on the new man, which according to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, is talking about being born again, that you take the part of you that was born again, this born again spirit, you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You were created righteous. You aren't in the process of becoming righteous or holy. You were born again that way. Righteousness isn't something you uh, appropriate or something that you grow into. It's something that you were created that way. It's a gift of righteousness is the terminology that's used in Romans chapter 5. It says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 that Jesus is made unto us wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. Jesus is your righteousness. There is a self-righteousness that we have to have in our dealings with people, with the government, and things like that. But that is useless when it comes to God. Your performance and your right actions are absolutely useless in relating to God because regardless of how righteous you are, all of us have fallen short of God's standard, Romans 3.23. And we have to have salvation as a gift. So when you get born again in the Spirit, you are created righteous and truly holy. What a great truth that is. And I couple this with John 4, 24 that says God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God only accepts you when you come before him in spirit, not in your flesh. And you know, I'm, I'm not going to preach on this in the name of Jesus. But this is a radical truth right here that if you understood what I'm fixing to say right here, this would, this would answer a lot of questions, help you to understand a lot of problems that are in the body of Christ today. It says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Men, religion, which is man-based, it's based on man's attitudes. It's not based on the word of God. Religion will always emphasize the external the outside, what you must do. It doesn't approach God in the spirit based on who you are in Christ, that you were created righteous and truly holy, but it'll always approach God on the basis of you got to do this and this and this. And it will talk about your exterior and actions, whereas true Christianity is talking about what God has done for you, not what you have to do for God. 
Now that is a mouthful that I just said right there. And if you could discern it, I can guarantee you most churches are talking about you got to do this and you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this. Man, I grew up in a church that we used to have this little point that Mary had a little lamb. It would have had a sheep, but it joined the Baptist church and died from lack of sleep. And you know what? You can become so busy doing something for God that you, honestly, you don't have any time for God. We aren't human doings. We're human beings. It's about who you are. When you make Jesus your Lord, you become a brand new person and you just are righteous. That's who you are. That's your nature. Somebody says, well, it's not my nature. Yes, it is. This is what this is saying. Your born again spirit is created righteous and truly holy. And if you say, well, I can't discern that. That's because you are looking, you're trying to look in the mirror and see that you're righteous. You're searching your emotions to see if you're righteous. But there's a third part of you, the spirit that can only be accessed through the word of God. The word of God is the only way to see what is happening in your spirit. You can't feel what's going on in your spirit. Sometimes we use that terminology, but it's really incorrect. You can't feel what's happening in your spirit. It can only be discerned by faith through the word of God. And so you were created righteous and truly holy. Here's what I want to deal with tonight. I know that there's some people, I had this thought myself that, well, Father, I can believe that when I got born again, that at that moment you washed away all of my sins, that I was righteous and holy and pure in your sight. But I've sinned since then. I've failed since then. And here's what the average Christian thinks. That when you're born again, you're forgiven of all of your past sins. But then every time you sin, whether it's big sin or just failure to be what you should be. You don't study the word. You don't pray as much as you should. You aren't as loving to your mate as you should be. You aren't as kind. You don't think of other people. You're selfish. All of these things. We just develop a sin consciousness And we constantly feel like, God, I know that you forgave me. And at one time I was totally right with you, but I've sinned. I've failed since then. And we uh, fail to believe that God feels the same about us because we think that it fluctuates based on our sin. That is not what these verses are teaching. I'm going to share some scriptures with you tonight that this will blow away your religious thinking. And I know that, you know, the Bible says, Mark chapter 7, verse 13, that traditions and doctrines of men make the word of none effect. And there are many of you that this is so ingrained, it has been taught you so much. Isaiah chapter 59, that God's hand isn't short, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and God. We've had that grained into us, grilled into us so much that this has just become something that is uh, a staple. It's unquestionable. People just automatically think that God can't fellowship with me if I've got sin in my life. God won't bless me. God won't answer my prayer. You've got to get all of the sins. You've got to get everything right before God will move in your life. This is probably one of the most common traditions in the body of Christ, but it's not what the Word of God teaches. I'm going to share some scriptures with you that's going to challenge this tonight. And I know that there's a tendency for you to sit there and say, well, I don't care what the Bible says. This is what I believe. I've had people tell me that. I was ministering to a woman one time. I was painting her house. And she, you know, I was talking to her about the Lord. And she was a member of the Baptist church. And 
we talked about the Lord a lot. And finally, she uh, says, why did you ever leave the Baptist church? We need young men like you in the Baptist church. Why did you ever leave? And I said, well, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they asked me to leave. And she says, are you talking about speaking in tongues? And I said, well, that was part of it. It wasn't uh, all that there is to it. But yeah, I speak in tongues. And about the time I got usable, they asked me to leave. (laughs) And she said, well, they'd have asked you to leave my Baptist church too. And I said, well, how can you say that? And I turned over to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7, verse 39, I think, it, or maybe 14, 39, whatever it says, forbid not to speak in tongues. I said, right here it says, forbid not to speak in tongues. And she says, look, there's lots of things in the Bible that we don't believe. <laughs> and, you know, when she said that, it's just like, well, what's the use in talking to her, Amen. And that's the way most people are. Most people, well, I believe this. My grandparents believed it. This is what my church, I've always believed this. Who cares what the Bible says? This is what I believe. You know what? If that's your attitude, you aren't gonna, you aren't gonna like tonight's service. <laughs> you might as well leave right now, amen. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter nine. Let me share some, some verses with you. I wish I had time to go through the whole book of Hebrews. It's Charlie's favorite book, especially chapter seven. Inside joke there. But the book of Hebrews is powerful. It's one of the most awesome books in the Bible. If this isn't one of you, if Romans and Hebrews aren't some of your favorite scriptures in the Bible, you do not understand the grace of God in the new covenant. That's a strong statement, but it's absolutely true. Those are, those are the two masterpieces in the Bible on the subject of grace and transitioning from the old covenant to the new. And the book of Hebrews, the whole book is written to get you out of the Old Testament way of relating to God. Most Christians today call themselves a New Testament believer, but they relate to God the same way that the Old Testament believers related to God. And man, there is a total difference And that's what the book of Hebrews was written to do. The first chapter talks about how that Jesus is a superior way of God speaking to mankind. It trumps, it overrules all of the angelic manifestations that have ever happened. That's what the first chapter is about. The second chapter draws a conclusion. Therefore, we ought to take heed to the things that we've heard through Jesus, lest at any time we should let them slip. And the third chapter talks about how Jesus is the high priest of our profession, which you got to remember this is written to Hebrews. These are Jews that were grounded in the Jewish religion and there was only one high priest and that was under the line of Aaron. And he makes one of the major points of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus didn't come through the Levitical order. He wasn't a son of Aaron. Therefore, Jesus did, there had to be a total change from the Old Testament way of relating to God because if it was the same as it was under the old covenant, Jesus could not be our high priest of our profession. We couldn't approach God through him. And so he goes back and quotes from an Old Testament scripture that there was going to be a new priesthood through the order of Melchizedek. And these are radical statements. These are statements that to many of us don't mean much because we haven't been grounded in the same things. But to writing to the Hebrews, this is radical saying that the Old Testament law, the whole sacrificial system, the whole priesthood, everything is over, gone. Boy, super offensive. 
Super offensive. I guarantee you this is the thing that got uh, Paul stoned for saying things like this. This was radical, radical stuff. And if you understood it and applied it to our situation today, this will also get you in a lot of trouble because most of religion today is still Old Testament based. To most people, the only difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is one blank page. They don't have a clue about anything. We sing the same songs. Oh, don't take your Holy Spirit from me that David sang in Psalms chapter 51. And the Bible says that God will never leave us nor forsake us. And yet we pray the same prayer as a man who didn't have the same promise that we have. We act as if the war isn't over when the scripture proclaims that the war between God and man over sin is over. It's, it's done with. Most people aren't enjoying the benefits of our salvation. So anyway, this is what the book of Hebrews is all about. And in chapter 9, he begins to start making contrast. And he says, in the Old Testament law, there were all of these things that all were symbolic. Every piece of furniture in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple had a New Testament counterpart. And he starts talking about what they are except one. And look at this in Hebrews chapter 9. It says, he's talking about that there was the Ark of the Covenant, there was the table of showbread, there was the altar of incense, there was a candlestick, there was all of these things. And in verse 5 it says, and over it, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. In other words, the only piece of Old Testament uh, furniture in the tabernacle and temple that isn't that doesn't apply to us today are these cherubims of glory that sat over the mercy seat. If you aren't familiar with that, the Ark of the Covenant, of course, is where the Ten Commandments were, Aaron's rod that budded. There was a pot of manna in there and it was holy. And I mean, they had a curtain there that separated that from other people and you could only enter into that holy of holy place one time per year. The high priest, after he had offered all of these sacrifices... And the first century historian, Josephus, who wrote a lot about the time of Christ, and uh, he's quoted often, Josephus said that they actually tied a rope around the high priest's foot because if he entered in there and if he hadn't done everything perfectly, God was so holy and man was so unholy that if he wasn't perfect, God had strike him dead. Those cherubims of glory were there to keep any person from approaching God that wasn't pure and holy and hadn't done everything. And that's what these cherubims were for. Cherubims aren't fat little babies with bow and arrows. They are mighty warrior angels. It says in Genesis chapter two that God set cherubims with flaming swords at the east end of the garden to keep Adam and Eve from coming back into there. They're warrior angels and they were there to kill you if everything wasn't perfect. So they tied a rope around the high priest's foot because if he went in and God struck him dead, nobody could go get him. He'd rot and stink and pollute the thing. So they just tied a rope to his leg so that if he died, they could drag him out. Well, that'd be serious, wouldn't it? What if every time you got in a pulpit, they just tied a rope around your leg in case God struck you dead? Nobody could go up there and get you. Well, I guarantee you people would probably preach differently, amen. But he says, we can't talk about them now. You know why? Because now the veil has been written twain. There is nothing separating us from God. Sin is a dead issue. 
It's been paid for and you can now walk right into the very presence of God and no angel will ever strike you dead. No angel will ever stop you or bar your way. It's completely different. And yet many of us still have the veil up and oh God, are you upset at me? God, are you going to punish me? God, would you answer my prayer because I haven't done something? That's an Old Testament mentality. That's what he's talking about. Let me drop on down a few verses. I'm going to have to skip a few verses to get all of this in tonight. In verse eight, it says the Holy Ghost, all of these things were signifying that the way into the holy of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. The Old Testament way of approaching God was imperfect. It never cleared your conscience. But in the New Testament, we're going to read this later in verse 2 of chapter 10, you should have no more conscience of sin. And yet very few New Testament Christians have realized that benefit. They are same as the Old Testament, constantly bearing about a sin consciousness and a sense of unworthiness. And oh God, I failed you. And oh God, do you still love me? Oh God, would you bless me now? That's an Old Testament mentality. In the New Testament, you should not even have a sin consciousness. Boy, that's as rare as hen's teeth. Most people think you can't live that way. I'm reading scripture to you. The Old Testament couldn't make you perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. That wasn't during the time of Martin Luther that we call the reformation. This is when Jesus is the one that brought the reformation. Jesus is the one that changed everything and the whole way of relating to God changed through the advent of Jesus. In verse 11, it says, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Again, these verses would have more of an impact. They would make a greater change in your life if you understood the context. He's contrasting the way it was done under the old covenant with the way it's done under the new covenant. Under the old covenant, there was a shedding of blood every time you sinned. You had to repent and bring a sacrifice and atone for that sin. Every time you sinned, you had to go back to God and get that sin forgiven. And then there were sacrifices every morning and evening. There were sacrifices every time you had a child. There were sacrifices every time there was a new moon. There was just this constant sense of, oh God, we're so unworthy. We we can't approach you on our own. And there had to be somebody's blood shed. And God granted us the privilege of killing an animal instead of our own blood being shed. But there was this constant shedding of blood. Sometimes as many as 30,000 animals killed in one day at the dedication of the temple and things like this. And then there was the day of atonement where one time a year the high priest went in and offered sacrifice for himself and then took a sacrifice to atone for all of the other sins of the people. It was just this constant sense of unworthiness and the concept of one sacrifice 
didn't even exist in the Old Testament. It was constantly, every time, multiple times per day, as many times as you sin, there had to be a new shedding of blood. He's saying that it's opposite that now. Jesus entered in with his own blood once, once. And this once is repeated five times in the next few verses. I'm going to point this out to you. He's making a contrast. Jesus only offered one sacrifice. And notice it says in this 12th verse, he's obtained eternal redemption for us. Eternal redemption. Eternal means forever. It means once for all. It Eternal. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says that we have now received redemption. That is the forgiveness of our sins. Ephesians 1 7 and I believe it's Colossians 1 14 says the same thing. The forgiveness of your sins. Redemption is the forgiveness of your sins. And we have eternal redemption. Not redemption until the next time we sin. Not redemption until the next time we fall short and blow it. We don't have to go to God every single time we sin and get re-forgiven, get the blood reapplied. I guarantee you this is different than what most of us have been taught. Most of us, we just hear this terminology, oh, you got to get that sin under the blood. Go to God and put that sin under the blood. Get the blood reapplied. Go to God, confess this and get your sins forgiven. Brothers and sisters, God only paid for your sins one time and he dealt with all sin and you received eternal redemption. Once Jesus died for your sins and it was once for all time, the sins that you haven't even committed yet have already been forgiven. And let me drop another bomb on you. I'll just increase the damage being done here. That according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says that he is a propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation means the atoning sacrifice. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This isn't only true of Christians that all of your sins have been forgiven, but even non-Christians. People that haven't even gotten born again have had their sins forgiven by one sacrifice. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And I know some of you right now are, th- are you saying that, that people don't have to get born again, that they don't have to receive the forgiveness of their sin? I'm saying that the payment for their sins has been made, but you do have to appropriate it. You do have to receive it by making Jesus your Lord. But you know, the issue between God and the non-Christian isn't whether they're a homosexual, whether they've done dope, whether they've lied, whether they've stole. That's not the issue. The issue is... Have you accepted Jesus? The only thing that the Holy Spirit, man, I'm saying a lot of things right here. According to John chapter 16, verse eight, just keep your finger here. I'm coming back, but look in John chapter 16 in verse eight, it's talking about in verse seven that it's actually better for you that I go away because if I don't leave, I won't be able to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's gonna be better than having Jesus in his physical body here. Boy, a lot of people don't understand that because they have misunderstood the Holy Spirit and they blame the Holy Spirit as the one who makes them miserable and condemns them and all of this. And that's not true. And it says in verse eight that when he has come, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and 
of judgment. And people think, well, I know the Holy Spirit's nailing me every time I fall short, every time I don't read the Bible, every time I get angry, every time I lose my temper. Nope. That's your own conscience that's defiling you and religion has amplified it. The Holy Spirit's not the one that's making you miserable and the Holy Spirit's not the one that's making you condemned. He doesn't condemn. It says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. This sense of unworthiness and guilt and failure and condemnation that you have is not the Holy Spirit. It is not God. It's religion who has taken your conscience and has amplified it and your conscience is the part that is condemning you. It says that over in 1 John chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. And it's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is reproving the world of sin. What sin? Jesus knew that this was going to be misunderstood, so he explained it in the next verse. The next verse says, of sin, because they believe not on me. Which sin is it that the Holy Spirit is condemning, or not condemning, but convicting you of and reproving you of? Not the sin of adultery, not the sin of lying, not the sin of stealing. He's dealing with you about Jesus. Have you accepted Jesus? Have you humbled yourself and have you received the forgiveness that is available to you to, through Jesus? That's what the Holy Spirit is dealing with everybody about, not over all of their individual acts of sin. Some of you are saying, so you're just saying we can go live in sin? No, that's not what I'm saying. You know what, I'm not going to go right there right now because if I answer that question, I won't be able to finish making my positive point. I spend so much time criti answering the criticism that religion causes people to have that I can't even get to the real point sometimes because everybody's got all of these things. I'm telling you, this is not so that you can go live in sin, but the Holy Spirit is not nailing you over your individual acts of sins. It's all about your relationship with Jesus. If you haven't accepted Jesus, I don't care if you're the holiest person in here, you're going to go to hell. The sin of rejecting Jesus. Boy, you better hold on for this one. The sin of rejecting Jesus is a billion times or more worse than the sin of homosexuality. Homosexuality doesn't even compare to you spurning, either ignoring or rejecting God sending His own Son, making such a wonderful sacrifice and coming and bearing your sins. I guarantee you, some people... See, when, when you think that God is punishing you because of your individual acts of sin, then there are people who think it doesn't seem fair that the person who's lived a moral life but just never made Jesus their Lord, that they're going to be in the same hell as Hitler who killed millions of people in the same hell as people who are... Uh, uh, fornicators and homosexuals. It just doesn't seem fair. But when you understand that what sends people to hell isn't your sins because your sins have been paid for. What sends you to hell is whether you accept or reject that payment for your sin. And if you understand that it's the rejection of Jesus, whether it's total rejection because you hate Jesus and you're a God hater, or if you just live your life occupied doing your own thing and ignore the greatest gift that God has ever given the human race, there isn't a hell deep enough or an eternity long enough to punish people for ignoring the greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of earth. If you understand that correctly, then I can guarantee you the moral person 
who raised a family and did the best they could and they were good, but they just chose to think, well, you know, I'm not going to be a fanatic. I don't want to be one of these Jesus people. I'm good enough. God's going to accept me on my own. There isn't a hell deep enough to punish you for rejecting such a great sacrifice. Man, that's an awesome statement. That's, see, most people don't think that way. And they think, well, I'm pretty good relative to this person. God is your standard. And all of us have sinned and come short. And the Holy Spirit is convicting you over the sin of not believing on Jesus. That's the sin that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of. And if you feel, if you've ever stood in a church and says, oh man, I did something wrong and I tried to get away with it and the Holy Ghost just wouldn't give me any rest. He just made me miserable. That's not the Holy Ghost. That's your own conscience that made you miserable. I can testify to this because I was raised in a denomination that put a tremendous emphasis on you've got to do all these things right and God will accept you or reject you. I was told that God's the one that killed my dad, that God's the one that makes things happen and stuff and it's punishment. God is going to punish you and God won't answer your prayer and on and on. And because of it, I had such a sin consciousness that I would see profanity scribbled in a bathroom on a stall and I would be defiled for a week because I saw it. I didn't write it. I just saw it. And because I even had that thought cross my mind, I'd sit there and for a week not be able to fellowship with God because I'd had a dirty word come through my mind. I used to have a dream that I'd smoked a cigarette and I got caught and they turned me over to the police and the police turned me into my mother and I woke up in hell, burning in hell because I'd smoked a cigarette. Some of you think, oh, you've got to be kidding. No, that's religion. That's what religion does to you. I used to have that. It was a reoccurring nightmare that I had at least every six months for probably 10 years growing up. I felt so unworthy and condemned. And that wasn't God. So much of what happens in our life is our own conscience that is condemning us. It's not God that's making you feel rotten. The Holy Spirit's only dealing with you over one thing. Have you made Jesus your Lord? If you haven't, then I don't care how good you are, you're going to hell. You need to repent. You need to receive salvation. Have you made Jesus your Lord? Then if you have, I don't care how rotten you are. You're blessed. God loves you. God's forgiven you. Amen. And you are forgiven of all sin, past, present, and even future tense sin. Again, somebody's thinking, oh, so you're just saying it doesn't matter how you live. No, it does matter how you live. God loves you in spite of how you live, but every time you go live in sin, Romans 6, 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants will obey. His servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you yield yourself to Satan, then you are, I mean sin, you are yielding yourself to Satan. And the Bible says in John 10, 10, that the thief comes for no purpose except to steal, kill, and destroy He's out to kill you. And if you give Satan that opportunity, if you yield to him, he's going to eat your lunch and pop the bag. And you don't want that. And so quit living in sin. You're stupid if you live in sin. But I'm saying God loves you, stupid. God's not mad at you. God's not going to reject you. You're just stupid if you live in sin. And if you've truly been born again, you don't want to live in sin. You're wanting to live for God. So in verse 12, it says, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. 
In verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If you don't get free of this sin consciousness and sense of unworthiness, you cannot serve the living God. And this is where a lot of people are. There's a lot of people right here in this auditorium tonight that you love God and you have received salvation and made a commitment of your life to God, but you can't serve him. You can't be bold. You don't have any confidence that God is answering your prayers and that you can speak and miracles will happen and that you will come through this thing. You hope you come through it. You're begging God and asking him that he will help you to make it, but you don't have the faith and the confidence because you know you don't deserve it. Your own heart is condemning you and so you aren't serving God acceptably because your conscience has condemned you. You're still under the old covenant that those sacrifices couldn't purge you concerning your conscience and you're living in a self-condemned relationship with God because you haven't understood that God has already forgiven all of your sins, even the ones you haven't committed yet. Man, those are powerful statements. In verse 15, and for this cause... He, Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Here again is the same concept, eternal inheritance. Not inheritance till the next time you mess up and you lose it. You know, Pentecost, there's all kinds of different groups in the body of Christ But the ultra Pentecostals believe that every time you sin, you lose your salvation, your backslid, which is a terminology that's used a couple of times in the book of Isaiah talking about a heifer, a backslidden heifer. We've taken it and made a religious doctrine that you're backslid, which means that you were born again, but you've sinned. And so now you're backslid. And if you were to die in a backslidden state, if you don't get those sins under the blood and confessed, and if you were to die, you'll go to hell. Even though you've been born again for 20, 30, 40 years, if you have an unconfessed sin in your life, you'll die and go to hell. That is not what this is saying. And a lesser interpretation of the same thing is more like what some of the fundamentalist groups teach that, oh, you don't lose your salvation. Once saved, always saved, but God won't answer your prayers. He's not going to bless you. It's just a lesser consequence. Instead of going to hell every time you sin, you just lose the blessing of God. You can't get your prayers answered. God won't fellowship with you. It's the same stick. It's just a different end of the same stick. It's the same teaching. It's the same doctrine. It's all wrong. This is saying you have eternal inheritance, eternal redemption, not until the next time you mess up. That's good stuff. Let me just skip down for time's sake here. In verse 24, it says, For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often. As the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. You can't take that symbolism and apply it directly to us. Yes, there is a truth that uh, Jesus is our high priest, but he only entered in once and dealt with all sin for all times of all of the human race. He doesn't have to go in over and over and over and over and over. There was a truth, there was a symbolism, but not a complete symbolism. And he's making this comparison 
it breaks down in this area. You don't have to go back to God and get your sins continually reconfessed and recleansed. You were cleansed once for all time. And so it says in verse 26, for then, if that's the way it was, if Jesus was doing it the way it was done under the old covenant, then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world. If it was done the way that the Old Testament was, well, then Jesus would have to have died many, many times. Just take all of the people that are in this auditorium. I don't know how many are here, but I know there's at least 700, 800, 900 people here. And you know what? If every person in this auditorium, every time you sinned, and again, sin sometimes is defined as only adultery or lying or stealing. Sin is anything that's short of God's standard. We're supposed to walk in love towards each other. We're supposed to esteem others higher than ourselves. The way that some of you are thinking about me right now is sin. <laughs> some of you are upset with me because I'm rubbing your theology the wrong way. You know what? If just the people in this auditorium, if every time you sinned, you had to go to God and ask forgiveness. And if it was only the people right here, Jesus would never sit down on the right hand to God, the father. He would be constantly offering himself and repurging all of our sins. There would be no rest. And then take all of the millions of Christians on the face of the earth and all of the millions of times they sin every day. And you know what? It's actually, it's just impossible that Jesus is constantly reapplying his blood every time you sin. This is the point that's being made. Jesus entered in once and he dealt with this. It's not like the Old Testament where you have to have a new sacrifice for your sin every time you sin. He dealt with all of your sin and you were sanctified and perfected forever. It's already been done. That's the point that he's making in verse 26. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after that the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That's about four or five times that the word once is used in these verses trying to make the point that you don't lose your right standing with God. Not totally as if going to hell if you have an unconfessed sin or partially God won't fellowship with you. God won't answer your prayers if you do something wrong. That is not the new covenant. Jesus dealt with all of your sin. Sin has been wiped out. All of our sin has been placed upon Jesus and Jesus died for the sins of the entire human race. Sin is over. Sin has been atoned for. Now Satan, there is still a consequence to sin because every time you sin, you just throw the door open to the devil. So quit sinning. But as far as your relationship with God, it is not based on your sins. It is not based on how free from sin you are or how bad you live in sin. And this is basically the message that the church has not been preaching. They've been saying that everything, God exists. God has all of this power, no doubt, but your sins have separated between you and your God. And if you aren't seeing your prayers answered, it's because you aren't living holy enough. You haven't prayed enough. You haven't done this, this, this. It's not true. Jesus has removed sin. Sin, the sin barrier has been removed. 
says in chapter 10, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? He basically is saying if if they had made the worshipers perfect, they'd have quit offering the sins. Because it goes on to say, because the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. The Old Testament sacrifices were only symbolic. And so they couldn't really work. They were only symbolism pointing to something that would work. But Jesus did work. His sacrifice did deal with sins. If you took one of these little scales, you know, where you have a fulcrum in the middle and then you have these scales over on both sides. And if you put the sins of the whole world in one of those things, every vile thing that has ever happened or ever will happen in the history of the world, of course, that thing would sink down to the side. But you put one drop of the blood of Jesus on the other side and it would tip the scale. One drop of Jesus' blood was greater than the sins of the whole human race. And when people say, I have people criticize me when I preach on this and say, well, you're just making light of sin. You know what you're doing? You're making light of the blood of Jesus. I am not making light of sin. I hate sin. I know what sin can do. And sin has consequences even after you're a Christian because it gives Satan an inroad at you. It's just stupid, stupid, stupid to live in sin. Sin isn't smart, it's emotional. Sin is stupid. Amen? Anybody understand? I'm against sin. I hate sin. But sin does not separate me from God. All of my sins and all of the sins of the entire human race have been atoned for. And one drop of Jesus' blood was worth more than every vile thing that every human being in the history of the world has ever done. When people sit there and say, so you're just saying that sin is okay. No, I'm not. And what you're doing is saying that Jesus isn't enough. And this is the reason that people come up. I'm just not sure that God can forgive me. I know he forgives, but I'm not sure he can forgive me because my sins are so bad. You have magnified your sins. You think your sins are greater than Jesus. That's an insult. That's blasphemy against God. Who do you think you are? I don't care what you've done. What you've done is nothing compared to what Jesus did for you. Jesus has obliterated sin. And the way that the church is emphasizing sin and making sin such a big thing between you and God is diminishing the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. That usually goes over about like that. You should have no more conscience of sin. And let me just skip a few verses here. Go on down to verse 10. It's talking about how Jesus died and put his will into effect. And in verse 10, it says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The word sanctified means to make holy or to set apart. We were sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Once for all time. Some people think, well, this means once for all people. No, it's talking about once for all time. Keep reading. Look at the context of it. In verse 11, it says, and every priest, again, he's contrasting the way it was done under the old covenant and saying it's different now. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered 
one sacrifice for sins forever. Not just one sacrifice for all people, but one sacrifice for all time. One sacrifice for sins forever. Sat down on the right hand of God. Implying that he's not still up offering his sacrifice and reapplying the blood and working. He's done it. It's over. Jesus dealt with sin. Sin is not the issue. Boy, that's just as radical to our religious system as it can possibly be because the religious system is saying, no, that's everything. It's everything. It's all about how you can overcome sin. God overcame sin for you. And now it's a matter of, are you going to trust and believe that through Jesus you are in right standing with God and are you going to receive things? It's all a matter of faith now. Are you going to trust and believe what God has done or are you going to still sit there and try and earn God's favor by overcoming all of your sins and dealing with sins on your own? And those are strong statements. Verse 13, it says, From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Verse 10 says, He sanctified us by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14 says, If you have been sanctified, you have also been perfected forever. Perfected. Perfect. Not just perfect until the next time you sin. Perfected forever. How can this be? Again, if you are carnally minded, if you're only thinking about the external, if you're going to look in the mirror and you think this is perfect, you aren't going to be able to embrace this. You're going to lose it. If you search your soulish realm and your emotions and you think the way I'm thinking is perfect, the way that I have lust and hatred and anger and I get bitter and all of this, this is perfect. I just, the Bible is so hard to understand. I don't know what it's talking about. It's not talking about your body. Your body isn't perfect. It's got to be changed. You got a new glorified body coming. It's not talking about your soul. You don't know all things yet the way that you are going to know them as revealed in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But in your spirit, you have been sanctified and perfected forever. And you know, if you just kept reading, remember that men are the ones that put the chapter and verse divisions in here for reference sake. And I'm using them tonight. There's nothing wrong with that. But this is not a new chapter. It's not a new thought. It's not a separate thought. It's the same writer, the same letter. And in chapter 12, verse 22, it says this, that you are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. It explains to you where you are made perfect, sanctified and perfected forever. It's in your spirit. Your body's not sanctified. Your soul's not sanctified. But your spirit has been sanctified and perfected forever by one offering. And then the moment you are created righteous and truly holy. Remember the verse I started with, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. 
put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. The moment you're born again and you are given this sinless, pure spirit that according to 1 John 4, 17 is identical to Jesus. As Jesus is, so are we in this world. The moment you receive that new spirit, it says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. You were given this spirit that is sanctified, perfected forever, created in righteousness and true holiness, identical to Jesus. And then the moment you're born again, you're vacuum packed by the Holy Spirit, sealed. So that if you sin as a Christian, it, it gives Satan an inroad into your physical body because with your actions, you did something. So it gives him access to your physical body. He can put sickness on you. If you go out and commit sexual sins, immorality, you're opening yourself to sexually transmitted diseases. You're opening your soul up because you lusted in your heart. And so you are in your soul participated and you are opening yourself to condemnation, guilt, shame, embarrassment. You're going to hurt another person. And it's just stupid. But your body and your soul get open to the devil every time you go live in sin. So as much as you can, quit living in sin. Quit yielding to the devil. Quit get, you know, he's taking shots at you, but you provide him with all the ammunition. Quit giving him ammunition. Quit doing things. Live holy. But your spirit was sealed. And that sin does not penetrate that seal. Your spirit retains the righteousness and true holiness it was created with. It was sanctified and perfected forever so that your spirit has no defilement, no sin in it. And remember John 4, 24, God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. God is looking at you in the spirit and in the spirit you are righteous and truly holy, sanctified, perfected forever. God looks at you and says, son, daughter, you're awesome. You're perfect. You're identical to Jesus. The whole time that your conscience is condemning you and you're thinking, oh God, how could you love a person like me? God, I've failed you again. God is in the spirit. God is looking at you in the spirit and he says, you're perfect. You have boldness to enter right into the very holy of holies, the cherubims are gone. The veil has been rent in two. There's nothing blocking you. You can enter right in as it says in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Not just when you've done everything correctly, but even when you've sinned, even when you're less than what you should be. If you would approach him in spirit and in truth, you can come boldly into the throne room when you are a failure when you are less than what you're supposed to be. And some people say, this is just too good to be true. This can't be so because we have had a sin consciousness that has kept God at arm's length. Yes, he exists, but he wouldn't do anything for me because I don't deserve it. That's where most Christians have been living under the Old Testament where our sins have separated between us and God. I'm telling you, God has taken the sins away. The veil of the temple is rent in two. The cherubs are gone the mercy seat is right there and God the Father is saying, come unto me, all ye that labor. He's not mad at you. He's welcoming you in. And somebody said, oh, well, you're just saying that it doesn't matter how we live in sin. How many times do I have to say this? You're stupid if you live in sin. 
But God loves you, stupid. God's not encouraging sin. I'm not encouraging sin. And if you understood this, instead of this emboldening you to live in sin, if you really got a revelation of this, you would love God so much that he would treat you that way because you don't deserve it. It's not your righteousness. You didn't earn this. You didn't earn this access to God. It's a gift. It came through Jesus. Jesus paid a price. And if you could understand this, it would make you love God so much. You would be so thankful, so appreciative that, Father, you would accept me, that you would serve God more accidentally than you ever have on purpose before. You would be holier by accident than you've ever tried to be because you would just love God. It's like it says in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ would constrain you. Basically, the church has been using fear to constrain people. Do this or I'm going to get you. Pay your tithes or you're cursed with the curse. Happened to be an Old Testament scripture. Under the new covenant, you aren't cursed with the curse. Jesus bore your curse. But you're just stupid if you eat all of your seed instead of planting some of it. You still do the same thing, but now you do it with a different attitude. I'm not doing it because God's going to curse me and punish me if I don't do it. I do it because God, I love you so much. Look what you've done. It's like it says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. That's right after two chapters of talking about money and why you should give. If you sow a little, you'll reap a little. If you sow a lot, you'll reap a lot. God loves a cheerful giver. And he sums it all up in 2 Corinthians 9, 15 by saying, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. The reason you give in the New Testament isn't grudgingly or of necessity because you're cursed with the curse if you don't tithe. The reason you give under the New Covenant is because, man, God has been so good. God, you've done so much. I just love you. I want to prove that I love you. Here's, here's what I have. I'm giving it all to you. I'm, I'm sharing with you. I'm giving back a portion of things. Love will motivate you. Again, there's people that are afraid of what I'm saying because they're saying, man, you're taking away people's fear that God's going to get them and you're saying that he'll fellowship with them even if they've got sin in their life. He's going to bless them even if they aren't perfect. What's going to keep them from living in sin? Love. Love is a stronger motivation than fear. Fear has torment. Most Christians are tormented. They're trying to serve God, but they constantly fall short and their own conscience is condemning them. And man, there's a lot of tormented Christians who love God, but they aren't absolutely confident that God loves them because they are under an Old Testament law mentality. They haven't understood that we've been forgiven of all of our sins. We've been sanctified, perfected forever. We're sealed. Sin gives Satan an inroad into your body and into your soul. But your spirit is holy and pure and God is a spirit and he relates to you based on who you are in the spirit, not based on who you are in the flesh. And if you understand what I'm saying, this does not free you to sin. It frees you from sin. It will cause you to live holy. It says in uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, that the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared unto all men. And verse 12 says, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly and righteously in this present evil world. The grace of God will cause you to live holy. Grace doesn't cause you to live in sin. 
I know that this is just off the charts. It's off the page for most of us. Most people are thinking this, this, is, this is totally different. It's a brand new way of looking at things. Well, let me just point this out. Most people, the way you're looking at things isn't working very well. Most of you know that God can do miracles, but man, you struggle to get a miracle. You know that God's good, but you don't always feel His goodness. You don't always walk in it. You aren't seeing all of these things happen. If what you're doing isn't working that well, why would you be so resistant to accepting something new that is based on Scripture? I've been reading Scripture to you. If words mean anything, then you know what? We need to change our attitude. We need to change the way we relate to God. God has wiped all of your sins out. God's not mad at you. God's not even in a bad mood. God's not even ticked off. God's looking at you and you sit there and I'm such a failure and God looks at you and says, you're awesome. Boy, you are just as pure and holy as Jesus is. How can two walk together except they be agreed? If God is seeing you in the spirit and seeing you righteous and you're over here seeing yourself as a total failure... You know what? There's not going to be a lot of fellowship and communion between you and God. And this is where most people are missing it. Our own sin consciousness is keeping God at arm's length. We know that He exists. We've confessed Him as our Lord. We believe we're going to go to heaven, but we can't enjoy the benefits of our salvation. We can't believe that He's going to heal us. We can't believe that He's going to prosper us. We can't believe that He wants to fellowship with us. But He does. You know, we were praising God tonight during praise and worship, and I was just enjoying the presence of God. Jill wrote that song about my favorite place to be is to worship at your feet. And you know what? I was just thinking about how awesome it is to serve God, and I knew Nikki was going to come up and give her testimony, and I was thinking about Nikki and thinking that, you know what? She would have been dead today if it hadn't have been for Jesus and what he did in her life. And Chris... And Walt would have been grieving over the loss of their daughter. Tripp would have been grieving over the loss of his twin sister. And I was just thinking about all of this and thinking, God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Father, for intervening. Thank you for being real. And you know what? The Lord spoke to me and he said, well, thank you, Andrew, for telling them the truth. And you know what? There are some people in here that say, God would never say thank you to a person. (laughs) You don't know God. You are under this sin consciousness. Our God is a humble God. God is a good God. God's got a picture of me hanging on his mantle. (laughs) God carries my picture in his wallet. And some of you think, how dare you say that? Again, you're sin conscious. You don't understand You know, the worth of something is determined by how much somebody will pay for it. It doesn't matter what you've got. They've sold some of these memorabilia of Elvis and people, you know, like a hairbrush. It probably isn't worth a dollar. And they sell the thing for $100,000 because it was Elvis. So really, it's just whatever people will pay for it determines the worth and the value of something. God the Father paid His Son. He gave... God Almighty gave His Son for you. And you know what? That makes you worth a lot. That makes you the most valuable thing on the face of the earth. 
The price of one person, even the price of a lost person who is rejecting God has had the same price paid as, as paid for me or paid for you. God paid a lot for you. And for you to think that God would never say thank you and be kind to you and say, I appreciate you sharing and telling a person the truth, that just shows your sin consciousness. I'm telling you, God will say thank you to you. God will tell you that he loves you. God will tell you that he's pleased with you. God will tell you he's not angry at you. You go out and do something stupid and ruin your life and ruin everybody else's life and God will say, you know what, I still love you. Everybody else hates you. Everybody else, you're kicking yourself, you're condemning yourself, but God will say, I love you. I'm not mad at you. I've already paid for it. You know, my sister had an instance where she uh, had a daughter that just was, I mean, she was one of the most rebellious kids I've ever seen in my life. And she's 40-something years old and still rebellious. But when she was a teenager, she could make a saint cuss. She just, she could get under your skin in a hurry. And my sister was fixing supper for her husband, and he was bringing a professor home from the university. He was a professor at the university. So my sister was fixing supper for a company coming over, and her daughter got in her face and got to mouthing off and doing something. And anyway, my sister, who's born again, has seen people raised from the dead, had a woman die in her back seat and raised her from the dead. She's spirit-filled. She knows better. She just lost her temper and hauled off and hit my niece and just knocked her on the floor right in the kitchen. Let her have it. And as soon as she did that, oh, she felt terrible. She ran upstairs, threw herself across the bed. And she says, God, I've got to have supper ready in about 15 minutes. And if I start crying, I'm not going to come out of here until tomorrow morning. You've got to say something, help me so that I can pull this together. And you know what the Lord spoke to her? He said, Joyce, when you were eight years old and made me your Lord, I knew you were going to do this and I've already forgiven you. It's okay. Amen. And you know what that did? It broke the dominion of that sin. It didn't make her say, oh, I can, go, I can go slap my daughter around and do anything because I'm forgiven. It didn't make her go down and whoop up on her daughter again. Instead, she was able to pull it together and say, thank you and praise God for the forgiveness. And she went down and asked her daughter to forgive her and said, I'm sorry, I was wrong to respond that way. She was able to get supper ready and able to go on. See, that's what understanding the grace of God does. It doesn't cause you to want to go live in sin, but it'll break the dominion of sin over your life so that, praise God, you won't be devastated by it and feel separated and in that separated sense be so weakened that you just go out and sin more and yield even more to sin. But instead, it'll show you that I'm forgiven and I don't have to yield to this stuff and I don't have to be this way. You will actually live holier if you start understanding the grace of God. You know, I'm glad God called me to preach this because if I was a person who was living in sin and had been married a dozen times and lied and stole and lived ungodly and smoked and drank, you know what people would say? Yeah, I understand why you preach the grace of God. It's a way of you justifying and condoning all of your sin. But you know what? I live holier than probably every person in here. 
I don't know that for sure. That's a subjective thing. But I'm saying I'm 59 years old. I've never said a cuss word in my entire life. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I am Mr. Righteous. I have lived holier than most of you ever have. And I am not preaching the grace of God to indulge my flesh and to excuse my sins. The grace of God has caused me to live holy. So you're barking up the wrong tree if you're saying that preaching grace will make you go live in sin. I'm living a holier life than most of you. I spend more time studying the word than most of you. I spend more time praying than most of you. This does not cause you to go live in sin. Until you're getting better results, until you see the word, until you see the Lord living through you better than what he's living through me, maybe you ought to quit criticizing me and instead embrace it and understand how much God loves you. And then you'll go to serving God out of love and not out of fear. Amen. This is good news. It's the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. We wonder why people aren't packing out our churches and why people aren't coming. And we're saying, God hates you, you sorry thing. Repent or else, turn or burn. And we wonder why, no, why, why nobody's coming. Why would they want to watch television more than to come to church? Well, I tell you, if the television came on and during every commercial says, you sorry thing, you should be praying. Why are you watching this program? Why don't you get in there and fast and pray? Have you read your Bible lately? If every commercial came on and somehow or another criticized you over, if it was something bad, I guarantee you'd quit watching television. But instead, they'll show you a beer commercial. And they'll show you these beautiful horses running through the snow in Colorado. And they'll make you feel good about something that's going to rot your liver and cause you to die and lose your family. And, and they, they don't show you a person drunk, thrown up all over himself, laying in the gutter. If they were to show you those kind of things, you'd quit watching television too. They'll sell toothpaste by having some sexy lady on there and using sex to sell toothpaste. I've yet to make the connection between that. But they just make you feel good and stuff. If they were constantly condemning you, you wouldn't watch television if they did that ever commercial. And this is what religion has been doing. Just telling you how sorry you are. God's mad at you. You're worthless. You're useless. You're no good. And then we say, I wonder why I just don't want to study the word and pray and go to church. Man, I'm surprised that we have as many people in church as we do. I'm telling you, there is good news out there. You go to preaching the good news gospel. If you can ever distance yourself from religion and present Jesus the way that he did, he went out with the harlots and the publicans and the sinners. And he ate with them and he didn't condone what they did. The woman who was taken in the act of adultery says, go and sin no more. I'm not encouraging you to sin. Jesus didn't encourage you to sin, but you know what? He didn't condemn that woman. And they wanted to stone her to death, which is what the Old Testament law said to do. He instituted a new way. He didn't condone her sin, but he didn't condemn her. There's a difference from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Under the Old Testament, if your child curses the father or mother, you reprove them once. If they do it the second time, you kill them. We wouldn't have near as many kids. (laughs) 
There's a difference between the way it was done under the old covenant and the way it's done under the New Testament. And yet most of us are just mixing these things together and we have Old Testament attitudes. I tell you what, you need to get into the book of Hebrews and find the new and better way of relating to God and find out that God forgave you once. Sins are over. Jesus has dealt with everything. You don't have to fear. You can have confidence and peace in your relationship with God because Jesus is going to hold it steady, even if you don't. He'll never leave you nor forsake you, whether you deserve it or whether you don't deserve it. You can go to enjoy in your relationship instead of being terrified and serving Him with fear. There's a better way. Amen? All of these things, see, are a result of me understanding that it's in the Spirit that you're changed. In the Spirit, you're righteous and holy and pure, sanctified and perfected forever and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And God is a Spirit. And God is dealing with me based on who I am in the Spirit, not based on my flesh. People deal with me based on my actions and based on how I think and stuff. But God deals with me based on my profession of Jesus and the fact that I'm a new person in Christ. And to the degree that I understand that, it changes my actions. Boy, that's awesome. I tell you, brothers and sisters, this is something that there's not enough people saying this. This would change your life. And if you've listened closely, you probably have as many questions as you have answers. And you know what? Tomorrow is another day, and I'm going to deal with some of those questions. I'm going to deal with 1 John 1, 9 and talk about some of those things. But I tell you, what I've spoken tonight is true. I've used Scripture. Don't be like those people that don't let the Word influence what they believe. Let the Word of God have dominance in your life. Man, receive this with meekness and humble yourself and say, Father, I'm going to receive forgiveness of all of my sin, eternal redemption, eternal inheritance, sanctified, perfected forever. If you'll do that, I guarantee you it'll change your life.